Well, thank you, Ted, for shepherding my heart, certainly through troubled times and also challenging passages of Scripture. And uh, it is a blessing to come to the Lord in prayer and just to address the troubles of this world that only Christ can give us a right perspective and knots that only he can untie. Well, this morning our topic is on the righteous worship of Christ's kingdom, the righteous worship of Christ's kingdom. As we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, we actually get to Matthew 6. That's a, uh, a legend and uh, a minor miracle, I know for me, but here we are, Matthew chapter 6. And the focus as Jesus walks us through this is on the righteous worship of his kingdom. What are the standards of worship for his kingdom? What is worship in Christ's kingdom? And for most people, worship is about what Muslims do on a Friday. It's what Jews do on a Saturday. It's what Christians, if you're a Christians, do on a Sunday. And it's what sports fans do on game day, right? They pray, they pay, and they sing for the home team. And this is what sets us apart, right? Whether you're a Warriors fan or a Phoenix Sun or Lakers fan, this is what distinguishes who we pray to, who we pay, and who we sing for. As we think about this, this is also what separates us. For most people, worship is what we do to be right with our God, whoever and whatever that God is. But the sweetness of what we sang today and the liberating testimony of God's Word, and it, I know it doesn't sound liberating in the beginning, but it is so liberating. It is that there is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. Our gracious God clears the decks and he shows us, if we're willing to listen to him, that there is nothing that we can do or say or sing or pray in and of ourselves to make things right with God. Not in our wars, not in our families, not in our marriages, not in our conflicts, and certainly not in our worship. Cheering louder doesn't gain the win. As you think about that, it's kind of counterintuitive, is it not? I mean, there's that feeling, and many of you will see when my boys play soccer, there's a man pacing up and down, short Asian man, shouting and cheering right? There's this, this sense, it's like second nature to us, right? The more we do, the harder we push, the louder we shout, the more we cheer, things are going to be made right. And when they're not, sadly, there's hell to pay, is there not? And it's because of our natural sinfulness, all our worship is naturally what? sinful, right? If we are naturally sinful, our worship is going to be naturally sinful, and there's nothing that we can do to make that better. And this is why the one true God, our Creator, in love sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into this fallen world 2,000 years ago, in love to do what we would not and could not do for ourselves came to make things right. And this is what righteousness is all about, brothers and sisters. That big word, this is what we're talking about. Christ came to save his people from their sins. And he came to save us from the righteous judgment of God, what we read about in Joshua this morning. Sounds terrible. Going into a land, destroying everything. Everything was devoted to destruction until we sort of wide-angle lens it and see, look, that's us, brothers and sisters. We are an offense to a holy God. We have betrayed him. We have not worshipped him. 
We have substituted ourselves in his place, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in his son, Jesus Christ. Christ came, the good news, to do what we could not do. So why do we elbow him out of the way and say, I can do a better job? Christ came to do what we could not do for ourselves, to save us from our sins and to save us from the righteous judgment of God, to save us from what we all deserve. And why did Jesus do that? Did he do that so that we can pray and pay and sing on a Sunday just like the Muslims do? Well, the good news of God's word is that Christ did this. He died and he rose again on the third day, strictly out of love for you and I. He did it so that we might be right with God. And he did it so that we might have a right relationship with God as our heavenly father, not as a wrathful judge. And the real good news of God's word is that righteousness and a right relationship with God are entirely gifts of God's grace. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But God so graciously gives it to us freely for those who repent and trust and follow his beloved son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior. Brothers and sisters, this is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about the gift of God's righteousness that comes in Christ's kingdom and comes from Christ being Lord of our lives and the gift of a right relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. So often we think of the gospel as a ticket to heaven. And so often we think of worship as what we do on a Sunday. But brothers and sisters, in love, God has given us so much more. His desire is that we would know him as Jesus knows him, as our loving and holy Heavenly Father, who gives everything, including his beloved son, so that we might be his children. And that, brothers and sisters, is worth celebrating. But it's also worth, as we come to our text this morning, guarding and protecting with our lives. And as Jesus walks through the Sermon on the Mount, he's showing us, really, everything is about this right relationship with God. Everything is about this sacred gift, this blessed gift that we've been given. Precious, a treasure, worth, beyond anything this world can offer. And as you see, when he starts in Matthew 5, the beginning, he's showing us what a right relationship with God as our Father looks like in our hearts. What does a heart look like of a true child of God? And then in the second half of chapter 5, he walks us through what relationships look like when they flow from a right relationship with God as our Father. And as we come to Matthew 6, and Jesus is building, starting with our hearts, moving to our relationships, and now coming to Matthew 6, he comes to what worship looks like when it's the worship that comes from a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. And our big truth for this morning, um, if you'd be so kind as to show it, is that right worship comes from a right relationship with God. Right worship comes from a right relationship with God, with God as our Heavenly Father. And as Jesus walks us through Matthew 6, as we're going to see, he shows us in many ways we have it backwards. We think that this right relationship with God comes from what we do, a right worship. But as Jesus is going to point out, that's the worship of the world and all its false religions. Trying, begging, chanting, burning incense, going to the temple, doing all these things that penance, everything that we need to try and do to make things right. And the sweetness and the good news of the gospel is everything that we need to be right with God 
and to have a right relationship he has already given us in Christ. And our worship is meant to be a celebration of that and an expression and an overflow of the perfect love of the Father in Christ. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8. 1 through 8. And as Jesus walks through, he gives us a general principle in the beginning, and then he applies this principle of worship to three specific acts of worship, giving, praying, and fasting. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now our focus this morning is just going to be down to verse 4. But it helps to walk through and see the context of what Jesus is talking about. And the recurrent theme as you walk through his proclamation of the righteousness of the worship of his kingdom is this recurrent theme and coming back to over and over again about our Father who is in heaven, who is really the disciples' Father, because Christ is their King. And these things that he's referring to as acts of righteousness are commonly what most people associate with the traditions of worship in just about any religion, right? Giving, fasting, and praying. But underneath, Jesus is going to the heart of what worship is. He's using these common practices and getting to the very heart of what worship is. And theologian David Peterson describes worship as an engagement with God on the terms he proposes and in the way he alone makes possible. And it's a helpful definition. It's not perfect, but it's a helpful definition because it points us to what the testimony of God's Word has to say about worship and what we forget about. We tend to focus on the do's and don'ts. Here's this list of things that we need to do. I need to go to church. I need to read my Bible. I need to pray every day. I need to have my devotions. I need to get to small group, right? That's our propensity because that's our legalistic, our natural heart. What do we have to jump through in order to get a 4.0, right? with the Lord. But as we think about this definition that David Peterson has done based on the entirety of Scripture, what he's pointing out is when we handle Scripture legalistically, who are we focused on? Us. Whose performance are we focused on? Us. But as we come to the testimony of God's Word, this is really, worship is really about a relationship with God, an engagement with the Creator of the universe. And it's an engagement and a relationship that is based on the terms that he has made, and it's made possible entirely by him. The focus entirely is on who? It's on the Lord, and it's on his work from beginning to end. Brothers and sisters, how often is what evangelical Christians call worship the opposite? Entertainment, a show, a theater production, a high school musical, 
an engagement with our preferences on our terms for our price of admission for the applause of who? And what is it that gives us comfort when we go home that we did a good job? They clapped, they applauded, they said, good job. You did a really good job. As we think about this, this is a worship where the real religion is consumerism and entertainment. And where the customer, not God, is the one who's always right. And sadly, such worship bears many similarities to the worship that Jesus here, speaking as Messiah and King of Heaven, is warning his disciples against. And he's doing it out of love, brothers and sisters. He's aware of what our hearts are and what fills our hearts and the appetites of our hearts. He is a kind and he is a good Savior. And he's bringing it out to the forefront because it's a very, very real danger. And he's doing it to protect the disciples. And he's doing so most importantly because the worship that he has come to give and the worship that he will die for is a worship that is about the precious and sacred love of God as a father for his children, not the love of an audience or an entertainer. In fact, that's the very love that Christ has come to save us from. And hence his command where he says, beware. And why does Jesus say beware, which is, you know, a very, very strong command. It's because when we go down that path, brothers and sisters, and when we get sucked into it, what we get sucked into is a man-centered, self-serving, and idolatrous worship that replaces God and the worship of God with the applause of men. First, it's wrong, and second, it absolutely destroys first our relationship with the Lord, but then our relationship with one another and every aspect of our life. And our Lord and Savior in kindness comes in as Savior and Lord, and he takes over with power and authority, and he gives a command that is to be obeyed always, and he does so to protect the hearts, and the worship of his disciples. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. God's children are to guard their hearts and worship for the Lord. God's children are to guard their hearts and worship for the Lord. After I got married and then after Julie and I were able to have a family, a lot of my activities, relationships, hobbies, many of the things that I did as a single person in the local church. During my single years, it was all the time was being spent at church, ministry, just every aspect. And a lot of those things were really good things. I was so blessed by them. But after I got married and after kids came along, many of those really good activities and really good hobbies, and even many good relationships fell by the wayside. Why? I know this is an experience that many of you have had. I had been blessed with a sacred gift, the gift of a covenant relationship with Julie and the blessing of children in a family that God had given us. And those relationships being holy, needed to be guarded and protected. Guarded and protected even from good things. Because when we say this all the time, the good things become the best things, then we end up with an idol, right? And we have to be careful because marriage and family can become an idol too and squeeze out the relationship that's most important. And in Matthew 6, 1, Jesus is pointing us to the relationship that is most important. 
It's the relationship with God as our Father in heaven, and it's a relationship that the disciples have received as a gift, not because of anything they've done, but because of God's grace. And it's been given to them through repentance and faith and following Jesus as their King and Lord. They've given up their lives. They've given up their nets. They've given up their their businesses. They've given up their authority and power to run their lives, and now their lives are entirely in Christ's hands. But Jesus gives this, these disciples this opening, always command, beware, take heed, guard carefully. And the language he uses is that it is to be always, never ceasing, always on guard. And it's a warning of imminent danger and attention about what is most precious and most sacred. When you have something good, brothers and sisters, when you have a treasure, everybody's gunning for it. And what Jesus has already established in Matthew 4 and 5 is what makes a child of God a child of God is this gift of Christ's righteousness and this gift of a right relationship with Jesus' Father as our Father. This is the sacred treasure. This is... The, the gift, and what is the threat, and what is the danger that Jesus is warning them, and he's commanding them, beware, watch, guard carefully, stand on guard, stay awake, be vigilant. What's the danger and threat to this relationship? Well, according to Jesus in verse 1, it's the practicing your righteousness before other people. And when he's talking about your righteousness, he's talking about not what we do. He's talking about this gift that they've received from Christ. And when he's talking about this threat and the danger, the threat and danger is flaunting this gift that God has given them, this relationship with God, and this righteousness that they have, flaunting it for what purpose and intent? In order to be seen by them in order to be seen by them. Brothers and sisters, we we know how this works in other aspects of our life. God blesses you with a gift, and it gets paraded in such a way that it creates envy or is used in a way that is not proper. Our families weren't to, to to, to be used that way. Our children weren't meant to be used that way in order to garner applause or be placed in a place that makes us look good, right? It is a self-serving love. And Jesus is warning us, hey, when you take God's gifts and you flaunt them in front of others for the purpose of being seen by them, that they're looking at who? You know where I like to go with this. My old friend Tupac, right? All eyes on who? Come on, you know what. I know it's before your time. Right? And Jesus is pointing out, look, you may be a child of God. You've been saved and delivered from these things, but you're still vulnerable. And until I come back again, until you're made whole, this is something that can start out good. Instagram, social media, showing pictures of our family in order to share them with others. Not a bad thing, but the lines can become blurred very quickly because of what's in our heart. And this, brothers and sisters, is the opposite of Jesus' command in Matthew 5, 16 earlier, where he says, let your light shine before others, where letting your light shine before others is a reference to Matthew 5, 10 through 11, of being persecuted for Christ's righteousness, where Jesus there is talking about letting your light shine, this persecution for Christ's righteousness. You're standing with Christ. Let it shine. Let people see. Don't be ashamed of the gospel for what purpose and intent? Do you guys recall? So that they may see your good works and give glory to who? 
You? No, to your Father who is in heaven. He brings it back to that relationship. And Christ's command of bewaring of practicing our righteousness, what he's given us before other people, in order to be seen by them, he's showing the disciples and us this danger is a very real temptation even to children of God. When we think of Christian media, we think of Christian celebrities, we think of Christian, the Christian music industry, we think of Christian publishing with books. And then we extend it, brothers and sisters, to our Instagram and social media posts, right? When we have to come and say, look, this is a very real temptation that starts out good and things get blurred very quickly. And where does the battle happen? Well, Jesus points out the battle begins in the intentions and desires of our heart. We can do the same things, but we can do them from very, very, very different motives. And he's showing disciples, hey, it doesn't take an awful lot. In his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, which we went through this summer, Ed Welch reminds us that this natural inclination to worship ourselves rather than the God who loves us and created us for himself, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3 goes all the way back to the garden where Adam and Eve, in choosing to worship themselves rather than their heavenly father, they exchange the gracious fear of a good God for what? The terrible, terrible, terrible fear of wicked men. And since that time, that's the path that we've walked where the inclination of our hearts as we live in a wicked world is men do terrible things. They put you on a pedestal and they tear you down just as fast. You're only as good as what you've done and how you've serviced someone. And when you're no longer good or you no longer serve them, well, look out, here it comes. And so we live in a world of the fear of men where we try and cover ourselves and we try and cover ourselves with our clothes and we try and cover ourselves with our performances and we try and cover ourselves with our careers and our education and all these things that we do so that the people who are looking at us say, oh, this person is of value. Don't hurt them. Don't touch them. And as you think about it, that's the way very frequently we raise our children, is it not? Get a 4.0, get a good college degree, get a good career, get all of these different things, and you'll be okay. People will treat you well. And we see, brothers and sisters, it's the way the world loves. It's the way the world worships. What have you done for me lately? And it's really the natural inclination of our heart to look for the affirmation and security and pleasure of sinful men as opposed to the grace and the kindness and the love of our Heavenly Father. And in Proverbs 29, 25, this is why the author of Proverbs says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And this is where Jesus is going as he talks about the intentions of our heart. What do we take into our hearts? What do we fill our hearts with? And what do we do with our hearts? because it's either going to draw closer to the Lord or it's going to contaminate everything that comes out of that heart. And brothers and sisters, we gorge our hearts on entertainment and social media and sports. And I'm not saying that they don't have good purposes and they can be used for good, but we gorge ourselves on these things. And we wonder why our children are anxious and we wonder why our worship is discontented. And even the secular community and even the health groups write up all about the impact of our technology on our mental illness and mental health and things like anxiety and panic attacks. And they're making observations and connections and advising people about how to handle their technology. And we look at what are we feeding and amping 
our hearts and the desires of our hearts with over and over and over and over again. And we see when we take that and we bring it into not even our relationship with the Lord, but our relationship with our spouses and our children. Brothers and sisters, what's the feedback loop that we're sucking them into? And the sweetness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is he comes in and with a few words he sets us free. But he warns us that there's a very real battle. With his command, he shows us what is really at stake when we give in to this temptation. Of practicing our righteousness in order to be seen by men. Why is it so dangerous? He says, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And Jesus here is not saying our motivation for worship and our motivation and intention for our acts of righteousness is to receive a reward for God. That's not what he's saying. And if you look at it contextually in the grammar, that's not what he's saying. When he says for, he's giving an explanation of the command that has come previously. And he's giving an explanation of the consequence of what will happen if we ignore his warning and his command. It's the loss of reward with our Heavenly Father. That word para, which is translated here for, is also translated with. Your reward with your Heavenly Father. This idea of being together with God as your Heavenly Father. And as we go to Scripture, we see God's rewards, Old Testament and New. They're not what we earn and deserve. God's rewards are always gracious. They are always in excess of what we deserve. They are the rewards of a loving father for his children. They are not a manipulative motivational tool, which is what prosperity gospel rewards are all about. He's not dangling a carrot and say, okay, you better be good. So, And as you think about it, even in our families, which are a far cry from God's love as a father, but you think about this. When loving parents give their children graduation gifts, at its best, it happens after you graduate. And typically, at its best, it's not, okay, if you graduate, I'll do this for you. It's, hey, you graduated? Let me give you a gift. And that gift that you get, it, do we deserve it? No, you go to college, you're supposed to graduate, right? You go to elementary school, you're supposed to come to. It's just what you're supposed to do. It's right to do. But a parent gives that gift at its best to say, look, I love you. And I want every opportunity to celebrate what is good in your life for your benefit. And as you go through scripture, you see over and over again, this is the love and the reward of our Heavenly Father. He lavishly blesses us. Sometimes when we deserve it, many times when we don't, that's what we learned about in last week's sermon. But over and above that, when we are walking in his love, he lavishes rewards and gifts with him. It's about walking in his love. And Jesus is coming and saying, look, you can't have God as your father and the world as your father. You cannot have the love of God, which is pure and holy, and the impure and corrupted love of this world. You cannot, as he will later say, serve two masters. You cannot have two fathers. You cannot have two spouses. You can, but it will destroy you, and it will divide you. And what Jesus is pointing out here is our worship, like our righteousness, belongs to who? It belongs entirely to God. He's the one, disciples, children of God, who's given this to you. You didn't have this before. You didn't have a relationship with God as your father. You were his enemy before. Christ has come, and he's brought you into his kingdom, and he's made you part of his family, and now you have this relationship with a God who loves you with a pure love. Your gifts, everything that he's given you, it belongs to him, it's for him, it's so that you can celebrate his love together with him. Brothers and sisters, this is what holiness is. And Christ is pointing that holiness begins in the heart. 
because holiness is about a heart that is wholly devoted to God for who he truly is. And this is the model that the Lord gives for every relationship in his church and in the world, be it our marriage or our parenting or our relationships with other church members. It's meant to be an expression of this perfect love, that there is a devotion and a love that's being given that is not self-serving, it's self-giving. And it's the criteria for worship. It's holiness. It's a devotion to God. Why? Brothers and sisters, because this is the way the Lord has loved you. And this is what brought Christ to the cross. And it's for this reason Jesus comes and gives his command in verses 2 and through the rest that we're not to give and we're not to worship like the world. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. God's children are not to give like the world. In verses 2 through 18, Jesus applies his opening command in verse 1 to three specific acts of righteousness and worship. And the first is the act of showing mercy and giving to the needy. He says, thus, or therefore, because of this command or this principle, when you give to the needy or when you show mercy, and it's worth noting here, Jesus does not say, if you give, what does he say? When you give. Brothers and sisters, where Jesus is Lord and when we're children of God, giving and showing mercy and showing compassion is not an option. It's always. It is who we are. Why? Because God is our Father. And the subtext here and the principle upon which Jesus is building is the testimony of God's word of God as Father. And I'm going to give you three aspects. First, our Father in heaven is the God who is selfless, generous, and is a merciful giver. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. In Deuteronomy 10.18, the Lord executes justice for the orphan and the widow. He shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. All the commands that show God is a generous and merciful giver and one who gives with incredible compassion, especially to those who are weak and vulnerable. Second, God's children have always been the needy recipients of his generous mercy and compassion. If you're a child of God, then you're someone who has experienced firsthand God's mercy and compassion. Psalm 103, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Verse 3, Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Verse 4, Who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. This is who our God is. And brothers and sisters, when we give for applause and we give like the world, we are nothing like our Heavenly Father. Third, God has always commanded and taught his children to be intentional with their giving. There's the broad principle. There's what we've received from God. And then God comes and says, hey, don't just assume this is going to happen. You need to prioritize and be intentional to give as I give. Your money, your time, your resources. It isn't just going to happen. And you need to show this mercy and grace even to your animals and your livestock. Proverbs 12.10, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Even your pets are to be aware that your love and your kindness and your grace is from the Lord and it's different. It's to bear witness that your father is 
the Father who is in heaven, who is a gracious and merciful and kind. He does not tolerate sin, but instead he finds a way to cover over and bring us back in. And on the intentionality of this, Exodus twenty-two twenty-nine, he says, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest. It's not when you get around to it. It's the first fruits. And in Deuteronomy 26, the Lord instructs his people to tithe and give the first fruit of their wealth. And then after the Lord is honored, they're to give a regular portion to feed the Levite, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. Ongoing priority to care for those who are unable to care for themselves or provide for themselves as a demonstration and showing that God shows his love for his people through his children, right? So we see verse verse 2, Jesus comes and makes a point. You are not to give like the world because this is who your father is. He says, thus, not if, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. And it's obvious in a beautiful illustration, he's talking about this conspicuous giving, making noise, drawing attention to yourself, our Instagram posts of all the good things that we do. And he says, don't do this as the hypocrites do. And you're well aware of the language Jesus is using. That name, hypocrite, was used. It was actually not a pejorative, it was just a regular title for actors in Greek and Roman theater where they would wear the mask for a tragedy or a comedy and they would come on stage. And why would they wear the mask? As an actor, for the applause of who? And the Academy Award goes to, right? And Jesus is pointing out here the propensity of the heart. When we give for the applause, when we sound, when we draw attention to what we're doing, This is where it's going. It's going to a very dark place where we're playing for the applause of others. And we think, brothers and sisters, of our millennial giving. How often do we give for a cause that we feel connected to? How often do we give because this is important to me or I can see the results? It's all about what we can hear and see and what validates who. My desires, my aspirations, the people I like, And we think of the charitable donations, we think of the plaques, and we think, brothers and sisters, very frequently in the evangelical world, the way we pat ourselves on the shoulder, the scholarships we set up, the Mark Chin Scholarship for short Asian men, right? I mean, it's an exaggeration, but brothers and sisters, it's everywhere in the drinking water. And it begs the question, do we give like the world, not just our money, but our time, our kids, everything. We're so often the focus starts with a good intention of wanting to share our experiences with others and it quickly becomes about looking at us. And we have to say when they look at these things and when they walk through and we think, and I want you to be mindful, social media can be used for very good things. But the question is when it's posted, are people looking at Christ or are they looking at you? Because God has given us all these things, including social media, yes. But why has he given it to us? So that people can see the love of our Father and they can be brought to repentance and faith in Christ and brought into a relationship with him. And Jesus says when we fall into that trap and we give like the world gives, he says truly, Amen. I say to you, divine proclamation and judgment. They have received their reward. Jesus is speaking as king and son of God. This is a divine judgment. And the word he uses when he says they have received is an accounting term that means paid in full. Paid in full. You work for this, you were paid for it. The account is clear, you can go on your way. What did we work for? when we give like the world, the world's reward. And Jesus is pointing out when you go down this path, what ends up happening is you exchange the temporary and fading applause of the world for the eternal 
grace and love and affirmation that comes from being with God as your heavenly father. Now, he's not talking about relinquishing your salvation, but he certainly is talking about the joy and blessing that comes from walking and abiding in the love of our father. Well, what's the remedy? Brings us to our last point for this morning. God's children are to give like their heavenly father and they're there to give for their heavenly father. Having commanded his disciples not to give and show mercy like the world for our applause and our satisfaction in verse three through four, Jesus commands his disciples how they're to give the very opposite of the world. But when, not if, but when you give to the needy or show mercy ongoing, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And Jesus' illustration is both beautiful and obvious, right? He's not only telling us to do the opposite of what the world is doing. New Testament scholar Charles Quarles points out, he's warning us of the propensity of our own hearts to pridefully applause what we do. Even if no one sees, the propensity of our heart is when I put a big donation in the offering plate or I do something, good job, I can sleep well tonight, I'm good with God. And once again, Jesus penetrates the heart of the matter. What is the purpose of giving and showing mercy and doing acts of righteousness in this way? Guarding our hearts, verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Once again, contextually, you know he's saying, he's not saying, hey, do this so that you get a secret reward from God. You give and then give secretly and then you get a house secretly or a relationship. See, he's not saying that. What Jesus is pointing us to is our fellowship when no one else is looking with a heavenly father who is merciful and gracious and good. Now, brothers and sisters, think about this for a minute. When God has shown you mercy and compassion, and the greatest mercy and compassion he shows us is exposing our sin and then covering it with the blood of his son. When he convicts us of something, a pattern in our life that's not pleasing to him, and he shows us mercy, and he convicts us with the power of his word and the Holy Spirit, and he brings it to our attention, and he brings us to the gospel. How often does he blow a trumpet? Ta-da! Here's Mark Chin. Mark, here's all your sins, and I've forgiven you of all of them. Hey, everybody know, here's the list from A to Z. Does God do that? He is a discreet and he is a gentle father. And just like church discipline models, he comes once privately. He comes twice privately. Sometimes he even gets under our hood and stirs things up and makes things a little bit difficult and hard sometimes so that we turns up the volume slowly, but always with the intent of bringing us back into fellowship with him. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, our worship is meant to be a celebration of that. And as we think of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, he's pointing us that the worship of his kingdom is the worship of the cross. And we think of what Jesus did, sacrificing everything. And when he goes to the cross, does he do it, brothers and sisters, for the applause of men? He does it out of love for his heavenly Father, and he does it out of a pure and holy love for you and I for sinners. And instead of applause, he is the cornerstone who is rejected. And instead of the welcome and wealth of the world, he is crucified. But his worship is holy and is pure. And the sweetness that comes is it is a worship and a, a, an expression and an act of righteousness. What's the outcome of it, brothers and sisters? It restores sinners 
to a right relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. And it is a worship that gives love and it gives life rather than tearing people down. And so we see, brothers and sisters, as we think about our worship, it's worth meditating and considering for a minute and for a moment. How has the Lord loved us? How has he saved us? What has he done for us? This is meant to be the heart of the worship that we give every minute and every moment of our lives. Why? Simply because it's right and because this is who God is. And this brings us to our very final slide for this morning. And thank you for bearing with me. Worship is about God's perfect love for us in Christ. It's a love that brings us back to God as our Heavenly Father. It's the love that God's given us. Our worship is meant to be an expression of the love, not a work for that love. And you see, as Jesus is walking us through, it comes to loving and serving his Son with his love. It comes to loving and serving his church with his love. It comes to loving and serving our enemies, the enemies of the cross, with his love. And in all of these things, as we look at it, in the battles that we struggle, brothers and sisters, with the fear of man, we all struggle with it. But what ultimately is the remedy? What's Jesus pointing to? It's the presence of Christ and his love in our life. It's his lordship. Where Christ is the authority and he is commanding our lives, he is watching over our hearts, he is guarding our hearts, he is protecting our hearts, And the path before us for protection, the remedy, is simply following him as Lord and obeying his commands. And you see, as we follow his commands, brothers and sisters, step by step by step, we're walking with him. And instead of living for the applause of men, we're walking in the love of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus how you have loved us and how you've cared for us. You have given us the greatest love of all, the love of your Father is our Father. Lord, would we shun the easy temptations of this world that so easily beset us and quickly pull us in the direction of living and preaching and serving for the validation of men. Instead, would we walk and abide in your love the love of a perfect father, the love of a perfect son, and the love of a perfect spirit. In your name we pray, amen.